You're listening to Divorce Happy Hour, everything you need to know about divorce in New Jersey. I'm your host today, Christina Previtt. Joining me today is the Honorable Glenn Berman, retired New Jersey family part judge. Judge Berman was in private practice for 17 years. Part of his distinguished career includes serving as Middlesex County Prosecutor from 1989 to 2003 and presiding judge of the family part from 2003 to 2008. Judge Berman began his retirement on January 1, 2013. He's now of counsel to the firm Greenbaum Row in Woodbridge, New Jersey, where he focuses his practice on mediation, arbitration, and discovery management of complex family, commercial, estate, probate, real estate, and general equity matters. Did I miss anything, Judge Berman? No, but I think you transposed two numbers. You said I was two a prosecutor. I think you said I was a prosecutor from 1989 to 2002. It was actually 1998 to 2002. Two ni- 1998. Yes. Well, I'm glad you know your own resume. Well, someone's got to know. That would have been a long time to be a prosecutor. <laughs> it huh? would have been. You know what? I think I got it from your website. <laughs> well, then our, so our website's wrong. I probably, I'm, I probably wrote it down anyway. So I, excuse me for that. That foible. Um, you have such a distinguished career, I couldn't possibly go over all of it. But this is divorce happy hour, so mm. my potential clients, existing clients, anybody mm. who's thinking about getting a divorce or going through mm. one now, we try to address issues that are important mm. for them. And we couldn't interview while you were on the bench, right? Correct. Okay. Well, but- actually, you could, but I'd be very limited to what I, what yes. I could say. Yes, but we can interview you now. Yes. So what I want to get out of you <laughs> is some things that maybe people who are going through a divorce now, it might be helpful to them. Um, and you're still doing mediation, so yes. you, you still are involved in that process. So as a divorce attorney, there's a lot of uh, perceptions, a lot of misperceptions about what actually goes on when us lawyers go to court, when we're trying to maneuver our way through the system. And I want to address some of those. Maybe some of them are true. I don't know. We'll see what you think. Um, But when you were sitting on the bench and you were having one divorced couple after another come in, what did you feel like was your primary responsibility as the judge in any given case? When you're sitting in family court, you really want to balance the pain. Uh, I was with a young lawyer for lunch today, and I said, you know, nobody wins these cases. No one budgets for them. No one ever gets married, think they're, they're, they're going to be in divorce court. Uh, no one comes in happy. And you, you really try and want to balance the equities and balance. I'll call it the, you you got to be fair to both sides. Uh, and you have to sort of eliminate someone's thought that, that they're going to win. You know, there's an old movie, you probably saw War of the Roses, where Danny yes. DeVito said to Michael Douglas, there's only degrees of losing. That's true. It's true. I'm not sure that the clients always understand that, though, because they're, they're in it. You know, they're in it deep. And I guess to them, there is some, there's some way to win. I think almost proving that they are right. I'm saying right in air yeah. quotes. Well, if you have an argument that you win an argument, I suppose. But the bottom line is, if you have property, you're getting part of it. So whatever you want, you've won part of your own property. If you have a custody fight, you're getting your children part of the time. So what have you won? You're only getting parts of everything. Uh, a a yeah. win sounds like you get everything, and no one gets everything. 
Well, sometimes I think they see winning, and this might be true of the attorneys mm. too. I'm just going to ask you about mm. that. Um, winning is if they put forth a position that they think is correct or mm-hmm. right, and you agree. Let's say the judge agrees mm. that, yes, that's, that's how things should go. I think sometimes they see that as winning. If someone perceives it that way, that's fine. But all I'm saying to you is, is that uh, matrimonial law is really a gray area. What I mean by gray is uh, if a woman hypothetically is entitled to two $200 a week in divorce, you could ask five judges what the right amount could be. And you could get five different answers, all right answers. Is it 190? Is it 195? Is it 210? Is it 205? The such judges have such discretion. Because remember, there, there are no jury trials. It's all yeah. judge decided. So like I said, you could get five different answers from five different people, and none of them would be unreasonable. Yeah, I tell people that all the time, too. Mm. Hopefully they listen. Um, do you make? Do you think that you form when you were a judge? Do you think that you formed opinions pretty early on in the case about what alimony should be, or you know, range at mm. least, or about any issue in the case? Did you form those opinions early? It depends on the information you get. Uh, a lot of times, you'll get information before you even see the people. For example, you might get what's called case information statements, which tell you assets and income, expenses, liabilities. So the answer is yes, you might form a range of judgment, but it's impossible to, to settle upon the exact number or the amount of years. But the answer is can you start to conjure up in your mind what you think the range would be by looking at documents? The answer is yes. So when if when you would have the case, you know, let's there, anybody who's been through a divorce, mm-hmm. I know that you sort of start out with an initial case management mm-hmm. conference, and you sort of move from there. You might have some other conferences. You have an ESP, and mm-hmm. and then eventually, if you hang around mm-hmm. long enough, mm-hmm. you can have several settlement conferences. Mm-hmm. Um, I think at least my experience now is that a lot of judges will say, "Well, I'm not prejudging the case," mm-hmm. um, but do you think that's probably not true? Well. You certainly hope it's not true to prejudge any matter, but here's the point. Uh, when judges conference case with lawyers before a trial, do judges think about cases? Sure. So do they have some ideas of where the case should end up? Sure. Judges aren't a totally blank slate. What you want to do is you don't want to predetermine what you're going to do for one simple reason. or Two, actually. A, it's not fair. And B, oftentimes the testimony you'll, you might hear is a lot different or somewhat different from what the lawyers tell you in chambers. Yes. So I think prejudging a case uh, is wrong, and it also could be dangerous. Yeah, I think I tend to agree with that, and I didn't consider what the what the attorneys are saying. Sometimes I wonder mm-hmm. is what's what an attorney is saying is that really are they posturing? Is that really what the client wants? Do you, do judges wonder those things too? Well, probably. Well, the answer is. You know, you negotiate cases yeah. all the time. So do some people posture in negotiating? Sure. Uh, it's it's human. You, you sort of expect it because it's a negotiation. But the one thing you mentioned that I'm not sure your viewers understood, because you're an expert, so you take this for granted. You mentioned yeah. ESPs, early settlement panel. That's a device, you know, where you go before two experienced lawyers who do it for free and try and give you a recommendation as to how to settle. But as far as prejudging cases, first of all, that's, that's wrong, totally wrong. And like I said, uh, oftentimes what lawyers tell you in chambers 
I'm not saying they're being deceitful. Uh, they may not know is different from what you hear when you get live testimony. Yeah, that's true. And and if the case is by the time you get to live testimony, mm -hmm. if you have a trial, the case has probably been going on for at least a year, probably longer. When I sat in Middlesex County, our goal was to resolve every case within a year for a couple of reasons. One, nobody files for divorce and wants to string it out. Mm, if people no. if people file for divorce, they want to get divorced. No one profits by a case taking three years. And the second thing is the reason you want to resolve it expeditiously is because I had an old expression. Sometimes people get invested in their own intransigence. The longer a case goes on and the more money – people have paid to lawyers or forensic accountants, sometimes it's harder to move them off their position. Because they feel like they've already spent so much on it. Exactly. Right? And yeah, yeah I think I've heard that from people. Is I, I've already invested, I'm using yeah. air quotes again, yeah. I already invested yeah. so much in this that they almost feel like they're losing if they give up that position because they, they'll actually say this, I could have agreed to that months ago. That's, that's exactly correct. That's and I actually say that to them, yes, you could have. Yeah. That's exactly true. I think it's hard for them sometimes to hear that, though. Well, you know, you have a great quote that I read on your website that I use occasionally. Well, thank you. I'll tell you what the quote What's was. That? You said, I have to tell you what you need to know, not what you want to hear. Yeah. So I'm quoting you. <laughs> thank you. Wow, what a compliment. Yeah, yeah um, that is sort of our motto that we mm. tell you. We don't mm. tell you what you want to hear. We tell you what you need to know. Mm. Because just as human beings, sometimes it's hard to tell anybody yeah. something that, that we know they don't want to hear. But I think when you're paying an attorney yeah. a lot of money especially, yeah. you I feel like you have a responsibility to be honest with them. Yeah, and I'll say a little bit differently sometimes. I'll tell people when I mediate cases or I arbitrate cases, I'll tell people, you have to distinguish between what you're entitled to and what you want. Yeah, There's a that's big important. distinction. Yeah, what it, what you want versus what you really need. Or what you're entitled to. Yes, yes, yeah. that yeah. too. Yeah. That too. Yeah, a lot of people have an idea of what they think is fair. Yeah. And if the law does not support that, <laughs> uh, it can be really hard for them still to grasp it. I'll have clients actually argue with me, and I'll just say, look, you know, I didn't make up the law. I don't yeah. even necessarily agree with it, yeah. but it is what it is. Yeah, my standard line used to be, I don't make the law. I discharge it. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, so something that I see a lot of clients get really caught up on is focusing on things that really aren't necessarily relevant to their case, like mm -hmm. things that are more emotional mm -hmm. in nature. And so I've noticed over the years mm -hmm. that what sometimes they're trying to do is just present either themselves in a really, really good light or more often present the other person in a really, really poor light mm -hmm. so that you, the judge, mm -hmm. will not like them will not like the other person. And it's interesting, but it comes up routinely. So it's a thing. Mm -hmm. I just want you to tell the public from where you would be sitting on the bench. Does that ever come into play? You know, do you make decisions about whether you like somebody or not? And The answer is no. And I'll tell you why. There's an old expression that someone told me once, the difference between criminal court and family court. In criminal court, you see the worst people at their best. In family court, you see the best people at their worst. That is so true. So, uh, yeah, you need to understand as a judge that no one wants to be there unless they just want to get divorced. Other than that, no one wants to be in court. Everybody wants to be at work or at home or something else. 
Uh, and as someone once said to me, in divorce, there's oftentimes, there's three versions. His, hers, and the truth. Yeah, it's really true. Mm. So people should start spending more time on substantive things that might have something to do with the outcome, like, you know, financial figures and things of that nature. Basically what their attorney tells them is relevant. And less time on, well, my husband cheated on me or my wife cheated on me. And, you know, they did all these other terrible things during the marriage and probably focus a little less on that sort of thing, right? Before I was a judge and I did some divorce work, I used to tell clients, pick your fights. You don't want to spend more money over an item. You don't want to spend more money than the item's worth. For example, I say, if you want to fight over the gold, the silver, and the china, we'll fight. Don't fight over the bath towels. Yeah. Well, even the china. Well, it depends what kind of china. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, well, yeah. I mean, I uh, way back I worked at the Macy's Bridal Registry. So, yes, that, some of that stuff is pretty expensive. So when you actually get into the nitty-gritty of things and – Let's say you get a motion and you have to figure out pendente lite support. Mm-hmm. You know, how are you – how did you approach that? Because I, I know every judge sort of has their own way of doing it. Pendente lite motions, and for your listeners, means pending the outcome. So if a hypothetically when a man and woman separate and say the man – not to be sexist, but say the man has been the breadwinner and he's walked out or left or she's asked him to leave and the wife – wants, needs money to support herself and her children, you get an application called Pendente Lighty. Those were the applications I spent the most time on for two reasons, maybe three. Reason number one is you now have people in two separate households who've got to live on the same salary or income they, they manage with in one household. So you've got to be fair to both sides. You have to make sure that the payor can afford it. You have to make sure the payee's needs are being satisfactorily met. So it's really a balancing test. And the second reason I spent so much time on those motions more than any were because you want to put the case on a track towards settlement. You hope you give the parties a decision which will give them some expectation of what what will happen. For example, if someone asks for alimony and you order too much, the payee is not going to want to settle at the case later for less. And conversely, if you order too little, the payor is not going to want to settle later down the road paying more. So when you get a pendente lady motion, you want to balance the equities, put people in positions they could maintain themselves with. At the same time, it's not destroy the case for possible settlement. Now, I agree with that 100%. I'm not so sure that judges, all judges on the mm. bench now are mindful of that mm. because I think we've all had an experience where someone got way too much or way too mm. little, and it really made it very difficult to settle the case after that. One of the biggest compliments I would get on the bench is when I'd issue a pendente lady order. Because, again, pendente lady motions I spent the most amount of time on. The biggest compliment for me was when I'd enter, I have a convoluted, very complex case enter what I thought was a, was a balanced order, and the parties come back six months, or not six months, six weeks, eight weeks later, and you see the settlement agreement basically adopted what I recommended or ordered like before. That was a great compliment. I think that does happen. If Yeah, because if you were way off, if you were way off mm-hmm. the mark, then one of them wouldn't agree to it, right? Yeah, for sure. But if it was probably about where it should be, 
then I think that's sort of the benchmark. And later, I I know I've been in that very situation where I'll say, well, this is what the judge came up with, and it's right, it's in the ballpark where it should be. Yeah. You've been living with that, yeah. So let's continue to live with that. Sometimes the real challenge, though, is when there's not enough money to go around, and that's probably more more often than not the cases that we see. There's not enough money to go around, so. How do you resolve those? Because you're doing mediation now. They're the toughest. They're the toughest. I, I've, I've said to people, no one comes out of a divorce case unscathed unless they're incredibly poor with nothing to lose or incredibly rich so they could just write a check and, and get out of it without any pain. They're the tough cases. Uh, like, because like I said, you know, when you have a, a family – that's been living in one house, and all of a sudden now they've got to maintain a house and an apartment. It, it's tough. It's stressful. So there's no real magic advice to give any of those people. The only magic advice I could ever give to people is I always tell people this when I mediate cases. I'll say, decide and come up with what you feel you need. And after you do that, Decide what you feel the other side needs. Because if you can't, because if you can't think of that, you can't settle. Because no one walks out of a settlement, or no one walks out of a, a divorce with nothing. Everybody wants to come out of it with something, and everyone's entitled to come out of it with something. Yeah, I think that's really good advice, and I think that's probably a little harder for people to do when they're in that emotional state: is to think about what does the other person need. Yeah, or or want. Um, but often I hear, well, I can't pay that much alimony. I'm generalizing, but mm. I can't pay that much alimony. How am I supposed to live? And then I always say, but your spouse is getting less. Yeah. So how is she supposed to live on that? And then the response I get is, you're not fighting for me, and you're on their side, and whose side are you on, and that sort of thing. Well, so- when I practice law, I told people the same thing. When people come to see me, I say, I've never lost a divorce case. And I said to him, and I've never won one. I said, we're, we're doing this to tie. It's really true. Hmm. It's true. Um, but I think sometimes it's more of the emotional part because you can talk logic. But when someone's really in that emotional state, it, they don't even listen to logic. Well, that's, that's stating the obvious. That's the toughest part. I'll give you an example. If someone has an auto accident on the Garden State Parkway and they sue for damages, they're strangers. They never met each other. If they if they've exchanged insurance information, they'll probably never see each other again unless the case goes to court. And there's no emotion. The accident wasn't intentional. They're suing an insurance carrier. But in divorce court, you're suing someone you loved at one time. Probably still do on some level. And maybe still do. And you're right, which makes it even harder. So there's a book I read once called Getting to Yes from the Harvard Negotiation Project. I think it had four rules on resolving matters. Rule one was, I believe, get the emotions out of the room. In divorce cases, that's almost impossible. Yeah, I think that's impossible. It's 95% of what we do is dealing with the emotional aspect. That's what makes it tough. Yeah. Because uh, because emotions cloud people's judgment. And I've I've heard attorneys say, you know, sort of jokingly, but it's really true, is I could settle this case so easily if it weren't for the client's. I've heard that. Yes, it, uh, it, it's true. <laughs> so, I, you know, a little secret, I guess, is sometimes what attorneys will do is they they sort of agree, at least preliminarily, on what the, how the case should 
end up because mm-hmm. because we can all figure that mm-hmm. part out. That's not really the hard part. Mm-hmm. And then work on the clients getting them there. I mean, mm-hmm. my personal opinion is good attorneys do that. Obviously, taking into consideration mm-hmm. the needs of the client and what the client wants mm-hmm. with, within reason. Yeah. But I, what I see too often, and maybe you can comment on this, is when the attorneys don't work that way. When, when even the attorneys are not really being collaborative and cooperative with each mm-hmm. other to that end. Um, sometimes I see that the attorneys are so adversarial, it almost becomes a fight just between the two attorneys. Forget about the clients. Yeah. It's almost between the two attorneys. That really is a shame, and that shouldn't happen. This is, first of all, it's not their case. It's their client's case. Uh, and that, should, that, that just shouldn't happen. But the other point you raised about having a ter- – you mentioned about case would be easier to settle without clients. When I – Mediate, of course, I speak to parties when they're parties all the time. When I was on the bench, I would speak to lawyers only in, cha- lawyers only in chambers. And I said to them, my job is to come up with a recommendation that both of you are comfortable with. And if you feel it's fair, I have to rely upon you to recommend, recommend and sell it to your clients. Uh, and, that's, and you're right. That's tough. So when you were on the bench, did you see that as a problem often or not really? No. i tell you why. Because I know having grown up, having been born, grown up, practiced Middlesex County, I knew everybody, or at least I knew all the the players, the matrimonial lawyers in the county. They knew me. I knew them. I think they trusted me. I think they knew that I was balanced. Uh, and I tried to work with them to settle a case. I could spend – I could literally spend two, three hours at a time in, in chambers with the lawyer trying to resolve a case. And my view was it's better to spend two, three hours in, cha- in chamber trying to settle a case than spend a week trying a case. And it's cheaper for the litigants. I agree with that. Mm-hmm. That makes total sense. So do you see a difference between how you approach cases now as a mediator and the way that you handled cases when you were on the bench? What's different? Well, the big, the biggest difference is is on the bench, I never dealt with the parties unless it was in court, open court and they were testifying in trial. So I would deal with the lawyers in privately, in chambers, trying to work out a craft a resolution that they could recommend. Now in mediation, where I'm getting paid as a sitting judge, you get a salary from the, from the government. Now that I'm being re- engaged, now, when I'm speaking with an attorney, 90% of the time I'm speaking with their clients as well because you, you try to build a relationship. You try and build trust, uh, and uh, you need to explain to them uh, what, your, what your beliefs are. And, and because here's the biggest difference. If, you don't, if you're a sitting judge, you don't settle a case, you're going to decide it. If you're a mediator – you can't. You're not deciding the case unless they give you that authority. You're just making a recommendation, yes. basically. Yes. Yeah. So, is it hard to go from being the ultimate supremo, <laughs> you know, wizard who gets to say this is what you're doing if you can't resolve it, and now not really having that power? Because I find that sometimes when I do mediation with a judge, I won't say any names. It's not you. Yeah. Um. Sometimes I I do see that there's difficulty with that, where 
they start out and they're already starting out from a place of, well, you should be doing this and you should mm. be doing that. And I don't really think that's the most effective way to start out mediation. It's not. Uh, but actually, mediation in some regards is more stressful and tougher. And you, you have to build a relationship. I'll give you an example. Uh, this happened to do with a lad case. Uh, law against discrimination, which I handle other cases besides matrimonial recently, where before the parties came in, I studied their papers. They gave me mediation statements, and I wrote down on a post-it note exactly where I thought the case ought to settle before even the people even walked in. After eight hours of negotiation, I'm proud to say this, we settled the case exactly what I wrote down eight hours earlier, but I didn't never set it. And here's what the lawyer said to me. I pulled the lawyer aside afterwards. It happened to be a woman. I showed her the post-it note. She said to me, if you showed me that at 9 o'clock this morning, my client would have thought you were on the take. Yeah. Yeah, you told me that story, and it, it's interesting. But what you told me was that they were really far apart. You told oh, me yeah. how far apart Oh, yeah. I forgot I told you. They were massively far apart. But the bottom line is is you have to build a relationship. you got to build trust. They have to know who you are. Uh, and... Like I said, the attorney said to me, "If you told me that, if you told my client that when she when he or she walked in the door, would have blown up the negotiation. This negotiation is it's sort of like a it's like it's sort of like a dance." Yeah, it really is. But now you're not only dancing with the clients though, but you're dancing with the attorneys too. Yes. So what do you do when you feel like the problem in the case is both attorneys or or one of them that it's you know that they can't play nice in the sandbox? How do you handle that? I, I pull them aside uh, privately. This my view is that someone told me this when I was county prosecutor when I had like two hundred employees uh, subordinate to me. Someone said to me, uh, "Praise publicly, criticize pi- privately." Sometimes attorneys will say things that are provocative and sometimes unfair. I'll never criticize a lawyer in front of another lawyer, but I'll say something. But I'll put the lawyer aside and say, that doesn't help. You're trying to settle the case. Uh, and my job is to lower the temperature, not to raise it. Yeah. Um, you, I, something that I've always noticed about you, you always cool, calm, and collected. Right? Like the way your voice is now, it's always like that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Well, <laughs> it is. It's a good quality. Well, I appreciate it. Well, you know, I'm not, I figure I've heard and seen about everything. So very little surprises me anymore. And, and here's the point you have to be, because I always had this theory if you want to get people's attention, lower your voice. Nothing gets people's attention more than someone whispering. Uh, if, if a lawyer is yelling in court or raising his or her voice, you perpetuate the issue if the judge raises his or her voice. You know, we've all heard a thousand lawyer jokes, yeah. but I've never heard a judge joke. Mm-hmm. Judges set up on an elevated bench, they call it. It's not a bench. It's a chair, but it's, they call it the bench. And people look up to judges. They, they're next to the American flag, the new flag of New Jersey. They're wearing robes. And people expect more. They do. So uh, my view was uh, if a judge is even thinking of raising his voice, my advice to sitting judges is take a recess. Uh, Because like I said, if you want someone's attention and respect, it's always best to talk in a lower voice than a higher voice. 
Well, I think um, I don't want to go too far off the, the track, but from what I see that goes on, sometimes these days, I'm sounding like an older person now saying this, I don't know that there's enough respect shown in both directions, not the way that there used to be. You know, unfortunately, I think that's true. Uh, and I don't know why. But I'll tell you what I think. But I, I tell you what I think two of the reasons are. In my view, I think there's two reasons for that. Historically, lawyers couldn't advertise until the early 70s. And law seemed to me a profession first and a business second. Now I think it's seen as a business first, a profession second. That's one reason. Here's the second reason, although I'm not a sociologist, so I'm not sure I'm right. People don't talk to each other anymore. No one picks up the phone. Uh, people text, people email. For example, what I do for a living is, you know, I'm engaged by lawyers to help mediate or arbitrate their cases, or I'm appointed by judges. I was saying this to a young lawyer today. 95% of the time, I get hired by email. No one talks to anybody. Yeah, you're right. I, I get, for example, I'll get on an average day 40 or 50 emails. I might get one snail mail letter. I might get one phone call a day. But I might, but I easily get a couple of hundred emails a week. That's so true. Yeah. It's or, true. And I think if it's infiltrated every area of yeah. life because I have a lot of single girlfriends yeah. that complain about dating yeah. And complain about how the guy doesn't pick up the phone and call them. Everybody's texting yeah. each other. That's right. You know, people email, people text. But a lawyer called me today. Uh, and before we even got down to business, so to speak, I spent a couple of minutes talking about asking how he's doing. Because I know he had surgery recently. Uh, because people, like I said, the Internet, I guess, is a very inventive, productive commodity. But the personal contact is – I'll give an example. When I went to college, the first thing I did, the first night I was alone in Pennsylvania, the first thing I did at night was write a letter home to my mother. When was the last time anyone ever wrote a handwritten letter? Anyone. It's been a while. I mean I told this to high school kids. They didn't even know what a letter is Yeah. or, or a mailbox. I don't even <laughs> think they're learning cursive anymore. I don't think they are either. No, that's true. I I don't. I think in some strange way it was supposed to help us with communication, but I don't think we're communicating effectively. No, like I said, I mean, uh, uh, people. Like I said, people email, people text, but no one, no one picks up the phone. And maybe maybe uh, maybe I'm the same way. I don't even know. I don't know. You've picked up the phone. I think you're more likely to pick up the phone than to email. Well, I pick up the phone. I pick up my own phone at the office. If it rings, I'll tell you why I do it. Because if someone's calling, they want me. So I have a direct line, which is right on our website. And if people call that number, it rings on my desk and my secretary's desk. But if they call that number and it rings on both desks and I'm there, I pick it up. You know, I'm going to make more effort after this conversation mm -hmm. to do less email mm -hmm. and more personal contact, Well, picking up the phone. Well, you'd have to do it more than I do because my standing joke is I've got no clients. <laughs> you don't, right? You get done with your mediation and then no, they go. No, no. What I mean is, what I mean is, I'm hired by lawyers. Well, they're your clients. Well, yeah, but yeah, in a sense, where you represent people, and the people you represent, 
as I say, are in pain. If they call you, they're calling you because they're upset about something or, or, or aggravated or angry. No one calls you to say, Christine, I won the lottery. I want to give you half. No, I've never gotten that call. <laughs> what I'm saying is that's why I told someone today. I was, I was with a young lawyer for lunch. I said, I give you one rule for you. If you want to follow it, go ahead. It was a divorce lawyer. I said, you shouldn't go to bed before you return every client's call before you go to bed. Some lawyers have a 24-hour rule the next day. When I practiced law before there was email, I wouldn't go to sleep till I returned every phone call I had. Unless it was maybe a salesman, then I might put that off for a day. But clients, you got to call back. I think that's interesting because I sort of struggle with that balance of mm. not feeling like I'm on call 24 hours a day. Because I do think you need some downtime and some personal time. And I think there are some clients who will abuse that. You know, you'll get phone calls on the weekend and late at night about things that really probably could wait until the well, next day. Well, then that's the benefit of text. You could text them or email them and say, I can't talk to you now. I'll call you first thing Monday morning. So if someone calls you or emails you on a Saturday, you say, I'm sorry, I can't speak. So that's the advantage of, of I guess, the, the digital age or the electronic age. But people want to be acknowledged. You know and I know yes. that, that most fee disputes and most ethic, ethics complaints arise out of a breakdown in communication, not poor yeah. work. Yeah, I think so. I think also at the crux of it is not someone not feeling valued or listened to. Yeah. Someone not feeling important. Well, let me tell you how correct you are. If you, I'm sure you remember this. The last case I presided over as a judge of any public, of any public measure was that Rutgers case, yes, which was televised, literally, I know all over the country, and people used to people told me they saw it in Europe. After I got off the bench, I was asked to speak at a lot of places, so I thought I spoke okay publicly, but I got a book on public speaking, and the book said if you want to be a good public speaker, rule number one is this: be a good listener. Hmm. So the answer is you're right; people want to be listened to. Well, it is. You mentioned it's the. It's really the number one complaint that anybody mm-hmm. has about their lawyer is that they're, there's they're not calling me back. They're yeah. not communicating with me. And I have to say that if I get a new client that had an attorney already and they're jumping ship, mm-hmm. it's always without fail because they don't feel like the attorney's listening to them. Mm-hmm. Maybe they're not communicating. They're not calling them mm-hmm. back. They're not explaining things to them. It's never. Because well he did he or she didn't get the yeah. result that I wanted. Yeah. It's because they're not listening yeah, to and, me. Yeah, and and the key is matrimonial work is done and could be done by a lot of people. The, the, success, the successful lawyers, like you and your partner John, to do it as well as to do it at that level, you got to be more thorough, more considerate, more responsive, because everybody knows the everybody knows the law. Everybody reads the cases. Everybody reads the rules. But those really successful lawyers are those who really pay attention to their clients. I agree. And so going back to what you do with mediation, I think, and you let me know if you disagree, I think what you're really doing, what all of us should really be doing in mediation is not necessarily just listening to the list of Mm. things that the people say they want, but understanding why they feel like they need or want those things. Because sometimes... It really doesn't have anything to do with the dollars or cents. Oftentimes, that's true. And there could be some way to satisfy what they feel like they want or need mm. in some other way well, that makes everyone happy. The answer is right. I tell lawyers this. 
I say both of your clients have to leave here feeling they got something. No one's leaving here empty-handed because no one's going to surrender. But what about this? I hear this all the time out of people's mouths. Not necessarily that they didn't get what they wanted, but the other person got what they wanted. You know, why, why do I have to do X, Y, and Z? He doesn't have to do X, Y, and Z. Why does he get that? Why does he, why do, or why do I have to do this, but he doesn't have to do that? Do you hear things like that? I hear it all the time on my end. Uh, the answer is yes. But, like, it's a give and take. I mean, I always tell people, what I said a few moments ago, consider what you want to leave here with. But also you have to make sure the other person got to leave with something also. Because a a settlement is just that. A settlement means that both people are settling, taking less than what they might optimally get if they try the case. But a settlement is different than a surrender. No one's going to surrender. Yeah. Yeah, you're right about that. So when you were on the bench, were were there ever any cases where you looked back and thought, maybe I should have done something differently on that one? The answer is yes. Uh, It's hard. You know, I even say this now because now I arbitrate and decide cases. And whenever I decide a case and I put my signature on a decision, I'm thinking two things. I'm thinking I'm right or else I wouldn't sign it. I wouldn't decide that way. I'm also saying this. Half the people in a room will think I'm wrong. So if you're asking, if you look back, the answer is yes. But you've got to be comfortable in your own skin. If I have a problem and one of my friends told me, here's my problem, I tend to overthink things. I don't shoot from the hip. My favorite line about myself is, all my mistakes are incredibly well thought out. I think I've heard that before. <laughs> so, well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's better than not thinking about it at all. Yes. So the answer is, do I look back occasionally? Sure. Because you want to look back and say I've been fair. To, you want to say I've been fair to these people. Uh, so I guess we can't talk about the cases that you thought maybe you should have decided differently. <laughs> well, let's, let's say this to you. I've been off the bench seven years, so I think about it less the time goes on. But, yeah. But you move on. But do you think about cases? Sure, because, you know, in 19 years on a bench, I'm sure I made mistakes. And I'll tell you, that always bothered me. I'll tell you why. There's a very prominent lawyer, uh, I'll tell you his name, Jack Boris, who vetted me for the, what's called the State Bar JPAC, Judges and Prosecutors Appointment Committee, when I was first up on the bench. And he pulled me aside and he told me something. He says, Glenn, if you make a mistake, someone's going to get someone's going to get hurt, and he told me that over thirty years ago. Obviously, I've never forgotten it. And I realized that being on a bench, if I make a mistake, I'm not paying for it. If I make a mistake, a, a party's paying for it. So you have to be really careful, and you can't forget that. And it's almost a frightening th- thought realizing someone will get hurt. But he told me that before I was a bench. I was on a bench, and since I'm saying it today, I never forgot it. Well, when it comes to money, though, how hurt could someone be? Like, how bad could the mistake really be? Well, it, hopefully it's minimal. For example, we gave the example before. If you order someone to pay $200 a week in alimony, and it should have been 205 you're not going to lose sleep over that. Here's what you'll lose sleep over as, as a family part judge. 
you lose sleep over custody and parenting time. Because money is paper. Because when I have cases now, and I have a couple cases now where we're fighting over custody and parenting time, I tell litigants the exact same thing every time. I say, listen, I can't make eight days in a week. I can't make 36 hours in a day. All I could do is help you allocate the time you spend with your child. Uh, and that's where you really want to be assiduously careful because there you're not dealing with just with the parties. You're dealing with what I call, remember, an unrepresented child. So that is 30 times more important to me than whether alimony should be $5 more, more or less. Did you ever appoint a guardian in a case? Yes. And why would you have done that? I've d- I did a number of times, and I'll tell you why. Because if I appointed a guardian in a case, I know I'm going to get objective, expeditious, independent information. When you have a custody case, and I had custody cases on the bench, a lot of them, what you hear from the lawyers who are getting their information from what their clients tell them may be skewed, may be exaggerated, may be wrong. But if I appointed a guardian, which the rules allow you to do, I knew I'd get independent, object, objective, helpful evidence. And when I appointed guardians, I always made sure I appointed uh, an experienced, reputable lawyer whose who, who's, who's reputation nobody would question. I wonder why judges don't do that more. I'll tell you why. Uh, cost. Uh, there were complaints. When I was on the bench, I remember a couple lawyers complained about me because I thought I did, I did it too much. The rule allows you to do it because if you appoint a guardian, it's a fee-generating appointment, and two things are going to happen. The clients may not be happy because they're paying more. And here's the second problem. The more they pay the guardian, the less they have to pay their lawyers. About all the other things they're fighting about. No, what I'm saying is if the money's yeah. going to the guardian, the lawyers will be upset because now they're not getting paid. But that was a complaint I had on the bench. Uh, I remember some lawyers used to complain about me because they thought I appointed guardians more than I should. I think that's a bit self-serving. The way that I look at that is the litigants are all doing this voluntarily. They could settle their cases, but they don't because they have to win or, you know, they can't let certain things go or whatever the reason. It's all voluntary. Nobody has forced them to be there, right? So if anyone's driving up the cost, they're driving up the cost. It's not everybody else. Well, I suppose that's true, except sometimes people take unreasonable positions and they feel they're being held hostage to someone taking an unreasonable position. But like I said, I think guardians are a great idea. Uh, and like I said, I, I employed it fairly often when, when, the, when, when there was a legitimate custody fight. Do you think, though, that... It, it does it happen often that there's a case where one person is fueling the litigation significantly more than the other? Unfortunately, I've seen that happen. Yes. Okay, so that does happen because I'm. I guess maybe I'm oversimplifying it, but sometimes I feel like I sort of use the adage a ten doesn't marry a two. And if they're both if they're both fighting, it's like this knockdown, drag out fight. It's usually, in my opinion, both of them. I said that. that to a lawyer in those exact words in a case in 1990. So I think that went around, and maybe I'm the author of that quote. Maybe I got that from you. So I had two lawyers in chambers one day, and one lawyer was running the other lawyer's client into the ground. Is that the lawyer? You know, tens don't marry twos. 
people usually marry at their at their same level. Uh, but if you're asking if people, if sometimes people can be unreasonable, the answer is sure. Yeah, there are times when I think there is one person who's just so incredibly unreasonable that it really makes it impossible for the other person to give in yeah. because they would just be giving up everything. I'll give you one example of a case. And, of course, I won't mention names Yeah, where uh, a gentleman wanted the children on Father's Day. And I said, of course, you should have the children Father's Day. Your wife should have the children Mother's Day. That, to me, is a given. But here's the position he took. He says, okay, well, I want to pick them up at midnight Saturday and bring them back midnight Sunday. I looked at him like, you want to wake him up in your mother's home on Saturday night at midnight? He said, yeah, I should have the joy. Because it's the whole day. Yes. To him, Father's Day was 24 hours. I said, sir, you're being unfair to your children. They're in school. So are you going to keep them until midnight on Sunday night to wake them up to bring them back to their moms on Monday? Uh, so, of course, I did what you would expect. I said, no, you'll pick them up like 9 or 10 in the morning and bring them back at 7 o'clock at night or 8 o'clock, whatever. But that position was something, I mean, I was like flabbergasted that someone would say that to me. Was Did the attorney advance the position on behalf of the client? Because that would shock me even more. No. As I recall, at the time, the, lawyers were, the client was representing himself. Okay. Yeah. And uh, needless to say, that didn't get a warm reception from me. Yeah. So occasionally, though, you'll get an attorney who I guess just can't say no to their client and they'll advance ridiculous things like that. Do do you scratch your head? Because I scratch my head when I hear those. (laughs) Well, I like to think when I practice law, I wouldn't do that because if you do, you lose your own credibility. Yes. I've said this to clients who advance some really ridiculous position. I'll just say, you know, I'm not advancing that. I. I care about my professional yeah. reputation. Mm-hmm. I am not going to court with that. Yeah. And, and if a client says, you work for me, the answer you should be is, no, I work for me. Uh, you could fire me if you want. But like I said, you know, judges are evaluating the lawyers the lawyers as well. And if a lawyer advances the position that's just, how do I say this, arbitrary or baseless, it the lawyer doesn't look very good. Yeah, I've tried to explain that to people. Yeah, Yeah, I agree with that. So going back to custody, because I know that's something that's really important to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. I've often thought, in most cases that are really tough custody cases, that a lot of times it's not really about custody. It's really just about more fighting and winning. Do you think that or not? It happens occasionally. Uh, I I can't, I don't have a statistic on it, but the answer is, Sometimes people use their children, as I call it, as bullets to fire. And you can't, and that's unfortunate to them. I read something in a psychology magazine a long time ago, and I told litigants this in court, and they like froze when I told them this. I said to them, you know, a contested custody case is a form of child abuse. I'll never forget, as long as I live, this goes back to maybe 1990. I got a letter from an eight-year-old girl. I'll never forget her. I remember her name, but again, I don't drop names. She was given a school composition. Her teacher sent it to me. And the school composition, the, the task was what you want to make you happy. So you would think kids, it was an eight-year-old girl, would still talk about going to a show, going to a park, going to a carnival, going to a circus, going to a ball game. She wrote to me a letter. She said, Dear Judge, can you please have my parents stop fighting over me? Eight-year-olds old. 
Well, that is so sad. That and I felt like saying to the parents, you know, you're robbing this child of her, of her, of her childhood. It's true. That's so young. That's such a young age. I'll never forget her. Because I, I, she came into court. She was eight years old. I remember speaking to her in chambers. Beautiful little girl. And, uh, and I think her parents were fighting just because they wanted – not because they wanted custody, but because they didn't want the other person to have it. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Mm. That's, a, that's a real distinction, and yeah. I think that happens more often than yeah. I care to admit. So when would you consider interviewing a child? Because people ask for that all the time, and they think that that's the easiest way to resolve it. It's, well, we'll just have, you know, little Mary decide where who she wants to live with. I don't think they really understand the position they're putting the child. So when would you entertain There's two that? views on that, uh, and I'll tell you my view, because you asked me. Some judges enjoy doing it, prefer doing it, wanted to do it as often as they could, as early as they could. And I get that. And there were experienced people who took that view, and I never quarreled with them. My view is the reverse. I didn't want to interview a child unless I had to, and I'll tell you why. Think about this for a second. What eight or nine – first of all, you don't have to interview a 16-year-old because, you know, they're going to – their opinions are formed, and the parents are going to respect it. So 16, 17-year-olds don't get interviewed. A six-month-old child won't get interviewed because they're not even verbal. The children in the, who get, may get interviewed are the eight, nine-year-old impressionable children. I never wanted to do it for two reasons. I did it, but I didn't really – was enamored with for two reasons. I'll tell you what they were. Number one, what child, eight, nine years old, wants to get up in the morning and say, I got to go speak to a man that wears a black dress to work? <laughs> not too many. And by the way – a man they never met, and then talk about their innermost feelings. It's uncomfortable. Uh, that's the main reason I like to appoint guardians to develop a relationship with the child at the time to do it. Did I interview children in chambers? Yes. And be blunt, I didn't think I was very good at it. I'll tell you one thing your, your viewers will get a kick out of, your listeners, not viewers. The only time I had... A child, I say child under 18, really happy to see me, was I had a young boy, a boy in one day, who spent alternating weeks, one week with his mother who lived in Middlesex County, one week with his father who lived in Somerset County. And he said, Judge, keep it that way. I love it. I said, why? You're bouncing back and forth. You know what he said to me? What? I have a girlfriend in each town. Uh, <laughs> wow. So, so I get to see him each. And when I can't see him, they know why. Other than that one kid who, of course, I never, by the way, I never told his parents what he told me. I never told anyone what he told me. Other than that, like I said, no child, children want to go to school. They want to play with their friends. They don't want to come see me. Well, how do you know that they also, they haven't been coached or that? That's the other problem is, that's the other problem. Because if a child comes to see you, If a child comes to see you, you have that fear that their mother or father said to them, tell the judge, tell the judge this. That's another reason I, I really didn't want to. I, I, I was always shy about interviewing children. Like I said, I did it. Uh, but I didn't. But it was tough for me. Would you always appoint an expert if the parties didn't get one? Because I never understand why. Why do pe- why do attorneys not get experts if if you know you're far along in the case and it's not resolved? The answer is why would they not? The answer is I would do it 
But that I want to do as early as possible. Because there's one thing about a custody fight. It doesn't get better as it gets older. If, you, if there's a custody fight and you, you legitimately need to appoint to, say, a forensic psychologist, psychiatrist, you want to do that very early. Okay. Well, note to practitioners. So we only have a couple of minutes left. Can you – Can you? you have so much wisdom in you. I, we can't possibly squeeze it out in 55 minutes, <laughs> Judge Berman. Um, what kind of advice would you give people after your years on the bench that – are going through a divorce or, you know, about to start the process, what would you tell them? I would tell them, don't think of your case as winning or losing. Think of your case as resolving it. When I mediate cases, I tell people the same thing. I said, a, a law school professor told me this. The optimal settlement is one of these both sides equally unhappy. I haven't found a way to make people equally ecstatic. Yeah, they don't leave ecstatic. And if one side's ecstatic and one side's sad, it's probably unbalanced. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so. I agree with that 100%. And, I, and you're right. Nobody ever, people don't leave happy. Nobody ever leaves well, happy. Well, no no, people don't come in happy. And I tell people, I, when people come into my office now, I say, I want you to leave here satisfied. I want you to leave here feeling you've been treated fairly and the result is something that's fair, balanced, you could re- and you could, and you could live with. I tell people I'm in the fairness business. I wish I was in the happiness business, but I'm not. Yeah, I always tell people you'll be happy when it's over. Yes. When and you've moved on with your life and you've got a new normal. That's when you'll be happy. The answer is that's absolutely right. Because I tell people if you settle a case, you get two things: you get closure, you get certainty, and you want to move on. Because, like I said, nobody—I've never met anyone who filed for divorce. And wanted it to take three years if it could take one. No, I, I've been doing this a little over 15 years, and I have to say I'm still amazed how long it takes, how much people are willing to seem to be willing to spend on it, tens of thousands of dollars, well over a year. I, I'm still, I still don't have an explanation for that, why people do that. It's, 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 it's unfortunate. It really is. For money, that could be better spent. Now, do you do mediation for people if they don't have attorneys? I've done that, but rarely. Okay. Uh, because if they come in, I implore them to get attorneys because I can't give them legal advice uh, because I'm not their lawyer. So I think I may have done that once. So it's it's rare. Okay. Uh, and because if someone calls me on a phone to mediate the case, the first thing I'm going to tell them is you should have a lawyer. Yeah. I, I tell them you don't do your own dental work. No, you wouldn't do your own heart surgery. Yeah. No, I think I think sometimes attorneys can complicate things, but at some point in the process, you do need to have legal advice. So, um, but that's all we have today, Judge Berman. Okay. Thank okay. you for coming in. Well, it's my pleasure. It's great to I see really you. I appreciate it, and it was um, very helpful to me too to hear your opinion about some of these things. Well, I'm glad you find it flattering that I quote you. I'm I, yeah. If, if I got nothing else out of this meeting today, it was that my well, head just swelled. Well, I read that on your website. Is <laughs> that's a great line? Yes, it is. Thank you. Thank you for using it. You're welcome. Um, so, if anybody wants to reach out to you for your services, how can they reach out to you? Uh, they could call. I'm on the website. Greenbaum Row. Greenbaum Row. My direct number is seven three two four seven six thirty two sixty. But but if someone Google's me, Glenn Berman. Or Judge Glenn Berman, it'll show up. Okay. But I, but if someone wants a divorce lawyer, you can't do that. I 
I all say, call Christina Previtt. Thank you, Judge Berman. I appreciate the plug. Because I don't, I don't do divorce work itself. I just mediate the cases. Thank so I'll, you. I'll say, call 1-800-PREVIT. Thank you. Oh, that's a good one. I have to get that, too. Well, thank you for listening to Divorce Happy Hour. See you next time.